Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. A few weeks ago, I began a study of Acts chapter 2 with you. The purpose of this study is to talk about the first church, the church in Jerusalem. Since this church was under the direct supervision of the apostles, my feeling is it's a great church to study to find out what would the apostles want our own congregation to be. And eventually, we're going to talk about that. I just felt like it would rush things to jump into the end of Acts 2 and talk about this first church without understanding how this church came to be. So that's why, over the course of the last few weeks, as we've studied together on Sunday morning, I've been preaching through Acts 2. We talked about the day of Pentecost in its Old Testament context in our first lesson. Last time I was with you on Sunday morning, we looked at Peter's actual sermon and the case that he pressed home for the identity of Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Christ of the Old Testament. This morning, what I want to study with you is the response of the people to Peter's message as he has preached the gospel and now tells them what they need to do to become Christians. There is no more important question that any of us could ever raise than the question that is found here, what shall we do? What is it that God wants us to do in order to respond to his gracious offer of salvation and to become his children? I want to begin this morning by looking in verse 37 at the question that these people raise. It says here in verse 37 that when they heard this, and I would say that just to get people to hear the gospel, and listen to what the Bible says is a major achievement. I think the vast majority of people really do not care what the Bible has to say on any particular issue. They might give some lip service to some kind of traditional religious belief. But in terms of fundamentally wanting to know what does God's word have to say, it seems to me that most people really don't have a great deal of interest in care in that. These people at least wanted to listen. They had listened to what Peter had to say, in particular about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm not going to restate this point that I made in my last sermon to you a couple of weeks ago, but just want to emphasize quickly that the foundation of all preaching must be the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as it was here in Acts chapter 2. But not only did these people listen, because the power of the message of the cross is what it is, when these people heard it, the Bible says next that they were cut to the heart. That's what the message of the cross does. 
for people who really listen to what the gospel has to say and understand the fact that we are sinners and that Jesus Christ came and paid an awful price to redeem us from our sins, that message, if you listen to it, is going to cut you deeply. Now, you can take one of two approaches when you feel the sting of what the gospel message says. If you look over a few pages into Acts chapter 7, when Stephen preaches a message about Israel's historical rejection of God's holy men and brings it down to their own day and time when he says in Acts 7 and verse 52, Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. When, when Stephen confronts these people with the sin that they have committed and the crucifixion of Jesus, their response in verse 54 was, <coughs> when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And I'm going to say to you that the gospel message, because of its very nature and power, will hit you home and home, and it will cause you to do one of two things. Either to be enraged that someone would dare challenge you in your sinfulness to be confronted with Jesus Christ. That's what happens in Acts 7. Or it will cut you to the quick and compel you to ask the question that these people ask here in Acts chapter 2. And that is, brothers, what shall we do? What is it that we need to do to respond to this message? Clearly these people have come to accept the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, but knowledge that Jesus was the Messiah was not enough. Mere belief in the fact that Jesus was the Christ did not take away their sins. Something more had to be done, and they want to know, what are we supposed to do in light of what we have heard? Peter's answer is found in verses 38 and 39. And basically, Peter gives these people two commands, which will be followed by two promises. The first command in verse 38 is, and Peter said to them, repent. The word repentance does not mean the same thing as penance does. Some of you may be familiar with the term or concept of penance, which is essentially to be sorry for what you've done. Godly sorrow produces repentance, the Bible says, but it is not repentance. Repentance is a change of the will. It is a surrender of the heart to be in submission to the will of God, to change the direction you've been going from your own way to the way of God. If you've ever seen these uh, coffee commercials, I don't even remember now which brand it is, but they have these commercials where they're either on a cruise ship or they're on a jet plane and they're on the way to their trip and the people are about to pass out the refreshments and they say, we've run out of, I don't know, was it Folgers or whatever, and then suddenly you see the cruise ship turn and make a U-turn, or the jet plane makes a U-turn. Well, that's a good way to illustrate what repentance is. It means to turn. And what Peter is telling these people is that you must submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ and surrender your will to his to change your direction from doing things your way to doing things his way. And then the second command that Peter gave them is to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism was not strange to these people. They had previously heard John the Baptist preach in the wilderness of Judea what Mark describes in Mark 1.14 as a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins. They were aware of the act of baptism, of being immersed or plunged into water. And now what Peter tells them is that what you must do in response to the truth that Jesus is Lord and you've crucified him, <coughs> if you want to know what you must do on the basis of your faith that Jesus is the Messiah, you need to repent. And then every one of you needs to be baptized. And Peter says, if you do these things, there are two blessings that will result. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. First of all, for the forgiveness of sins. These people were horrified to realize that they have crucified the very Messiah that their people have waited for centuries to arrive. Under the law of Moses, if you committed murder, the penalty was death. Can you imagine the penalty that would be imposed on those who would have crucified God's own anointed? Even King David was, would not dare to kill one of God's anointed kings, Saul, and he was an awful person. Imagine the penalty to kill God's own anointed Messiah. And yet Peter says if you will respond in repentance and baptism, you can be forgiven of your sins. And then the other blessing he says is, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 39 he says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I would suggest to you this morning that not even Peter really understood the full reality of this promise. Because as you recall in Acts chapter 10, it took repeated visions for him to realize the full significance of the statement, for all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God should call, that it is not only for Jews, but for Gentiles and for all people of all time, these promises are available. In fact, the fact that he uses the word promise connects us right back to the Old Testament. Both of these twin blessings of forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit were promised in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. This is one of the fundamental differences in the Old Covenant and New Covenant. You could be a member of the Old Covenant and never have anything change in your heart. If you were born to a Jewish father, you were in the covenant provided you were circumcised on the eighth day. And that had nothing to do with your heart. God says this is going to be a new covenant. It's going to be different. Now the people in this new covenant are going to be people whose very hearts have been changed. Hearts that have been pierced and cut by the word of God. He says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me. If you're going to be in this new covenant, you will have of necessity come first to know me and make a decision from the heart. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And now Peter says the day of God's promise has come and you can be forgiven of your sins. The other promise that he gave them here in Acts 2 was the gift of the Holy Spirit. Something that maybe sometimes we overlook, but which is also promised in the Old Testament. 
In Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. Almost hard to read that without making the comment here in Acts 2 that this chapter began by telling us there were Jews from every nation under heaven who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What God promises is that someday, just as he told Jeremiah, I will give the people a new heart. That when they get this new heart, one of the blessings would be that I will send the Holy Spirit. Now, I would like to say to you this morning, at this point, take your songbooks out. I mean, I wish this was this simple. I wish I could just go through Acts 2, read verse 37, what should we do? Read verse 38, here's what you should do. Verse 39, this promise is for you. That ought to be it. But I tell you, it would be irresponsible for me to do that this morning. Because in the world generally, in the religious world, what I have presented to you this morning is very controversial. That in order to become a Christian, we must have faith in Jesus and repent and be baptized. So I want to talk with you a little bit about what the Bible says about baptism and why some people do not believe that we should be baptized in order to have our sins taken away. The view that I presented to you this morning would be rejected by the vast majority of both Protestants and Catholics. In Catholic teaching, they would absolutely agree that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. But they would say that baptism is not to be accompanied by faith or repentance. That the one who should be baptized should be a little baby. A little baby who's born with the taint of original sin. And they should be taken and sprinkled. And without any faith on their own heart or any decision of the will to repent, that baptism in and of itself forgives them. Most Protestants would say it's just almost the exact opposite, which is that forgiveness comes when we repent or believe, but without baptism. And not only would most people in the religious world generally reject this concept, the fact is there is an increasing number of, quote, Church of Christ preachers who would reject it as well. Now let me be very clear about something with you this morning. You can read the Bible from cover to cover, and I mean from the table of contents to the maps, and you're never going to read anything about a Church of Christ preacher. No such thing in the Bible. There's no such thing as a Church of Christ Christian, a Church of Christ church, or Church of Christ doctrine. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if your religious identity is wrapped up in the fact that you're a church of Christer, then you have a woefully deficient understanding of what it means to be a Christian. What I'm talking with you about this morning has nothing to do with whether the words church of Christ are painted on a sign. It has everything to do with what the Bible says about how to respond to God on his terms. But the fact is there are a lot of people who have a very sectarian and denominational concept of what it means to be a Christian. What I understand the Bible to mean by being a Christian is this. When I am converted to God, I am incorporated into the one body. And then as a disciple, I have a responsibility to join myself with a local congregation 
to do God's work in his way. And that is it. There is no denominational machinery. There is no ecclesiastical organization. There is no collection of congregations that I become a part of. I am just a Christian. But there are many people who have a very sectarian and denominational concept of what it means to be a member of the Church of Christ. And I'll tell you what will inevitably happen when that is the case. If your very concept is denominational, you will reach a point in which you decide if we are just a denomination, then what can we do to be more accepted by other denominations? And that's exactly what's taking place. A couple of years ago, there was an article in Christianity Today magazine, which is just a major mainline evangelical publication, sort of the Time magazine of the religious world, which had an article about Max Lucado, who's a very famous preacher down in Texas, he used to preach for what was called the Oak Hills Church of Christ in San Antonio, Texas. But the church where Lucado is has made a lot of changes to strip away anything that might be considered a denominational distinctive. And this article wrote about this. And it says, referring to churches of Christ, the denomination first recognized in 1906 is the most conservative of the three restorationist streams, the other two being the disciples and the Christian churches. Other distinctives include an emphasis on New Testament Christianity, congregational independence, weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, and the necessity of baptism for salvation. Lucado, like many Church of Christ ministers, no longer believes that last teaching. So what I want to do this morning is make sure we all understand this is nothing to do with being a Church of Christ. It has to do with what does the Bible say? And what I presented to you this morning is that Peter says to these people on Pentecost that in order to be forgiven of your sins, you need to repent and you need to be baptized. Now, why would people object to that teaching? Well, here are some possible objections. Some people would say this. When Peter says in Acts 2 that we should be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, he doesn't mean you should be baptized in order to be forgiven. He means you should be baptized because you have already been forgiven. In other words, this past week, if I were to tell you that I took some Sudafed for my cold, I wouldn't mean by that I took Sudafed in order to get a cold. I took it because I had one. That's what I would mean by taking Sudafed for my cold. And so what people would say is that here in Acts 2, when Peter says be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, he means be baptized because you've been forgiven, not in order to receive forgiveness. The problem with this view, however, is that Peter uses a very specific word. There is a word in Greek that means because of, but the word that he uses here means in order to receive, motion toward a goal. Without even knowing Greek, though, I can just tell you the same words in Greek and English are found in Matthew 26 when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for forgiveness of sins. Did Jesus die because we've been forgiven? Or did he die in order for us to be forgiven? Jesus died in order for us to be forgiven. And the same words in Greek and English mean the same thing in Acts 2.38. We are to repent and be baptized in order to be forgiven of our sins, not because we have been forgiven of our sins. Other people would object and would say that the phrase for the forgiveness of sins does mean 
in order to be forgiven, but that that applies only to the word repentance. So we should repent in order to be forgiven of our sins, but then afterward we may or should even be baptized. The problem with this interpretation, however, is the word and. When I was a little kid watching cartoons on Saturday morning, my favorite cartoons were the Schoolhouse Rock cartoons. And I don't know how much the younger generation even knows about it, although the other night in my office, Peyton started to sing Conjunction Junction, Watch Your Function, which is what I want to talk with you about this morning. In Acts 2.38, Peter says to repent for the forgiveness of sins, but he also joins the word repentance with a conjunction, and. Conjunction, junction, watch your function. Hooking up words, that's what it does. And when he says repent, he hooks up the word repent with the command to be baptized. And because they are linked together, whichever direction repentance is going to go, baptism is going to go the same direction. And if we repent in order to be forgiven of our sins, then because baptism is locked in with repentance, the same purpose will be true for baptism. We'll be forgiven of our sins because we repent and we are baptized. I think that probably the most commonly made objection, though, against the concept that we should be baptized as well as believing and repenting in order to be converted to God is because of this idea that baptism is a work. It's something we do. And the Bible says we're saved by faith, and so therefore baptism can have nothing to do with our salvation since it's a work. Some of you may use study Bibles, and I would almost guarantee you that if you have a note on Acts 2.38, that your study Bible will say something like this. This is a quotation from Nelson's New King James Version study Bible. On Acts 2.38, is Peter saying that we must be baptized to receive forgiveness of our sins? Scripture clearly teaches that we are justified by faith alone, not by works. Then gives a couple of citations. Neither of which, incidentally, say anything about being saved by faith alone, but most certainly do say we are saved by faith. And frankly, I will tell you that those passages do teach that we are saved. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. But the issue for us this morning is, is baptism a work that we do, or is baptism a work that God does for us? And consistently in the New Testament, the Bible teaches that baptism is a work God does for us. And no passage spells this out more clearly than Colossians 2. Verse 12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. When a person is baptized in the scriptural way, what is taking place is not a work that they're doing. Rather, it is a work God does that they are putting their faith in. When a sinner comes to God to be forgiven, he comes in faith and trust that as he accepts the promise of God to be baptized, that God will perform the saving work of raising him from death and into life. I know that I had to have used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again because you've probably forgotten it. So I'll keep using it until you say, knock it off. So this is my illustration I always use on this passage. When I lived up in Elgin, one of our little kids, Hasmin, they were down here back during the holidays, Hasmin and Lisette, 
Nele Hose, <clears throat> she's about 10 years old, she had appendicitis. And she had to go to the hospital. And I went up to see her. And this nurse walked in, blundering into the room. Well, we're going to have to take it out. So she immediately just disintegrates in raw emotion, terrified. And so we talked, but, I mean, her appendix was really inflamed. And as you know, if that is not dealt with, it can be very serious. It could even be fatal. Poisons the system. And so little Hasmin, terrified, had to make the decision to trust her doctor and allow him to operate on her and remove that which was a threat to her. Now, after that was over, does anyone imagine that Hasmin came strolling to church one day and bragged about how great she was and what she had done for herself? All she could do would be thankful that she had trusted a doctor who had performed a great work for her. And that is the very illustration, by the way, Paul uses here in Colossians 2. He talks about baptism as an operation, a circumcision made without hands. What he says is, when that takes place, it is an act of faith on our part in God's work for us. And that's why the concept of salvation by faith, and yet at the same time, salvation at baptism, are not mutually exclusive. Because baptism is an act of trust in the power of God. As I was doing research for this lesson, I stumbled across, really by accident, a journal article from the Southern Baptist Theological Journal written by a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary named Robert Stein. The article was called Baptism and Becoming a Christian in the New Testament. And I wanted to share some quotes from this article with you because I thought they were really remarkable quotes. In his article, he talks about five, basically, steps of salvation. They're slightly different than the way I would formalize them. The way he formulates them are repentance, faith, confession, baptism, and regeneration. But he talks about how in the New Testament, all five of these are mentioned time and again in connection with the conversion process. And the conclusion of the article, he says this, The cardinal problem with most views on baptism today is that the five components integrally associated with conversion in the New Testament are now separated in time. He says, Roman Catholic theology, for instance, divorces baptism and regeneration from the human components of the conversion experience, repentance, faith, and confession. Thus, it seriously deviates from the New Testament pattern. Then he talks about the Lutheran perspective and the Reformed perspective. Then he comes to his own perspective. He says, Baptist theology also deviates from the New Testament pattern. Baptism is an act which witnesses to a prior experience of repentance, faith, confession, and regeneration. As a result, such passages as Romans 6, 4, that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we are raised to walk in newness of life when we're baptized into him. 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism now saves you. Titus 3, 5, we are saved not according to our works, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. John 3, 3, and following, you must be born again unless a man is born of the water and spirit cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says, as a result, such passages as these and others, which associate baptism with the experience of conversion, are embarrassing to many Baptists and often received a strained exegesis at their hands. Now, i got to tell you, I admire and appreciate anyone who is willing to critique what his own tradition may be. 
And I appreciate the fact that here is someone who's simply trying to deal with these texts in the New Testament, removing as much as you can whatever theological blinders may have existed. And when it comes right down to it, he says time and again in this article that no one in the first century would have ever questioned or had a problem with being told that in order to be forgiven of your sins, you should believe and repent and confess and be baptized. Nobody would have argued with that. It's only because of theological arguments that developed in the century since that this could ever be questioned. And by the way, I will just say this to you. That in the scholarly world generally, in the field of New Testament studies, for a lot of different reasons, there has been a growing awareness that a lot of these theological formulations that arose, especially at the time of the Reformation, were oversimplified. And there is a growing openness, not a majority certainly, but a growing openness to these texts in the New Testament which teach that salvation is by faith but also includes baptism. Which makes it all the more ironic that people who have at one time held to the truth about what the New Testament says about baptism would of all times now want to basically jettison that teaching in order to be more accepted by the denominational world when this is the very time there's more opportunity to present what these passages teach. Now, I fully realize the fact that the vast majority of people, though in the religious world, do not understand this New Testament teaching. How are we supposed to deal with these people? How should we view those who do not grasp this truth? I would say to you, this is not a new question. It is a question as old as the book of Acts itself. I think there are two examples in the book of Acts of people who fall into this very category. Look with me over in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul has been to Ephesus and he's brought with him a husband and wife team of Christians named Aquila and Priscilla. He leaves them behind to help out there. And verse 24 of Acts 18 tells us, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Here is someone who is, is doing his very best to please God and serve him, and even knows the truth about Jesus, but his knowledge of baptism is inadequate. He has only known the baptism of John. And then notice in Acts chapter 19 a similar experience. This is with Paul, who in Ephesus, it says in verse 1, found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? By the way, isn't that an interesting question? That Paul assumes that anyone who claims to be a disciple would have been baptized. And he says, uh, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized. Two accounts of people, Apollos in Acts 18, the disciples of John in Acts 19, who did not understand the truth of baptism in the name of Jesus. Now, how should we respond? Here's what I see in these texts. 
Number one, we need to commend people for what faith they do have. I am so grateful to God that the message of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel is such that it can have a profound influence on the lives of people even though they do not have everything sorted out in terms of what the Bible says about baptism. I am so grateful that that is the power of the gospel. Apollos is to be commended as Luke commends him for what he was doing that was good and right. These people in Acts chapter 19 are to be commended for at least trying to be disciples. That is the same attitude I think we should have toward anyone who's trying to follow God on the basis of whatever knowledge they have. Second, what you see in these texts, especially in Acts 19, is we need to ask people questions to find out what their experience has been. We live in such an oversensitive culture that's so afraid to offend or step on anyone's toes, there is nothing offensive in asking someone the most important fundamental question you can. Are you a Christian? How did you become one? Paul asks these people in Acts 19, what was your experience? What was your baptism? In order to ascertain what their standing was. And then once that has taken place, you need to correct. As Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos aside and corrected him, as Paul here in Acts chapter 19 preaches to these people, those who do not have the proper understanding of baptism need to be corrected. I do not say that this morning out of any sense whatsoever of pride or self-righteousness that I have everything in the Bible figured out. The more I, every day I do these daily Bible readings, I get bashed over the head with how little I know about the Bible. That's not the issue this morning. But the issue is if there is truth that I do know, I have a responsibility to share it with those who need to hear it. I've got to tell you, the worst thing in the world any of you could ever do for me is to see something in my life that is amiss, that I do not understand correctly or do not obey properly and never tell me about it. Only my worst enemy would ever react that way. If there's something I need to know, something I need to do, you are my greatest friend in the world to ever tell me what I need to correct because I love God and I want to be with Him forever and I want to know whatever it is I need to know to please Him. That's the attitude here. And if you're with us this morning and maybe you haven't understood that the Bible teaches that you should believe and be baptized for forgiveness of sins, I say this to you only to say that I want you to love God and go to heaven and be with Him. And it's my responsibility then to share these texts with you and encourage you to correct whatever might need to be corrected in your life. That's how we help one another. And people who have heart and passion to love God and want to do what He says are not going to mind that at all. Only if we're too oversensitive and too concerned about our feelings rather than loving God would that ever even become an issue with us. Well, let's take our song books out, please, and turn to the invitation number. I want to say just a few more things as we conclude this morning. I do not in any way this morning apologize for trying to spell out as clearly as I can what the Bible says and also to refute as thoroughly as I can misunderstandings about what this text means. But I do not want that to be all that we take from this passage today. Those who've had the experience of preaching the gospel in other places 
will tell you, for people who don't have a lot of religious baggage, you never have to debate what Acts 2.38 means. That's never even an issue. For people who don't have all the accumulated theological baggage that unfortunately we tend to have in our culture, this matter is as simple for them in this day and time as it was for these people. If you understand you are a sinner, and you are horrified at the prospect of what it means to be a sinner before a holy God. And a holy man has words for you to listen to that if you will respond in the way that he says, you can be saved from your sins. That's all that matters. And this morning, I don't want arguments about baptism to obscure the grandeur of what we just read about earlier today here in Acts 2. That people who have sinned, people who have outrageously rejected the will of God can nevertheless through his grace and through his mercy be forgiven. That is an awesome message. And it is the message that I want to conclude with this morning. I'm going to ask you a question and it can be answered two different ways. The question is how many people were baptized here in Acts 2? One way you can answer that question is from a numerical analysis. The Bible tells us in verse 41, about 3,000. But another way to answer that question is by a spiritual analysis. And that is, those who received his word were baptized. And that is our invitation this morning. Will you receive the word of God and do what Peter told these people to do? If you are a child of God, if you are a Christian, and in your life you have found areas where you try to somehow subvert the surrender of your will to his and rebel against the will of God. We want to urge you to respond, to live up to the confession you've made that Jesus is Lord, and let us know how we can help while we stand and sing together. Well, I will give